0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Cooper Cole podcast where we delve into the practices of Canadian and international artists in conjunction with their exhibitions at our gallery. This podcast emerged from our YouTube channel which we developed in 2020. My name is Magdalena Asimakis and I'm the director of research and artist relations at Cooper Cole, a contemporary art gallery in Toronto, Canada, that was founded in 2012. This episode features a conversation between myself and the Vancouver born New York based artist Finn Simonetti. Finn works in sculpture and stained glass. Her work examines the entangled relationship between measures of control and desires for security. Finn uses imagery that is designed to tap into our visceral fears and conceptually moves between rendering sculptural forms that represent both protection and vulnerability. Finn received her BFA from the Ontario College of Art and Design in 2009. She's exhibited internationally at museums and galleries such as the Esker Foundation in Calgary, Matthew Brown in Los Angeles, Company Gallery in New York, Interstate Projects in Brooklyn, and MoMA PS1 in New York, among others. Her work has been reviewed in Art Forum, The New York Times, Art in America, The New Yorker, Cultured Magazine, and Canadian Art. Finn is also a musician and will this year be releasing her second album through Haosu Mountain in Chicago. For her current exhibition at Cooper Cole entitled Our Denomination, Finn has created a series of adult-sized pacifiers or soothers out of various stones. The handles are made of lock shackles, some open and some closed, and some cut. The works are meticulously placed on a set of bleachers, which acts as both a plinth and a part of the installation. On the three wall works framing the bleachers hang three round wall works made of stone, lock shackles, glass, and found barbershop posters. These are called the rose window works because they reference rose windows in ecclesiastical Gothic cathedrals. We are recording this interview in conjunction with this exhibition currently on view at Cooper Cole in our West Gallery until April 16th, 2022. Thanks for joining us and welcome, Finn. Hi. How are you today?
1: (laughs) I'm good, thanks.
0: (laughs) There's so much to unpack with these works, but maybe the best place to start is to speak about the objects themselves. Um, You work with really difficult materials, predominantly stone and stained glass. Um, So can you tell us a bit about you know, how you came to working with these materials and, um, the process of making these works. I mean, I'm also interested in the, um, selection of stone as well, because you've used stones from, you know, different countries and chosen them very specifically. So maybe you can get into that a little bit as well.
1: Yeah. Um, so generally, like you said, I do stained glass and stone are reoccurring materials that I work in, but I try not to ever limit myself based on materials I sort of feel like whatever material the idea needs to live in is sort of what dictates but then there's certain things that ideas that I'm interested in that communicate well through stone or through glass in particular but yeah I always just like to caveat that like whatever I feel like material I feel like working in I give myself permission to do that and I think that's like a healthy thing as an artist Mm -hmm so for stained glass my dad's family are italian immigrants like they were all born in italy and they came here um i was born here or born in canada i live in new york so not here um and um they my dad's family a lot of them worked in glass and in stained glass like as a trade in italy and they brought that over with them um and continued to work in that material sort of I I mean, yes, artistically, but mostly in a, yeah, as a trade more than anything, a decorative trade. Mm -hmm. So I apprenticed under my uncle, who's a stained glass craftsman, and having not grown up with my dad's family and being estranged from that, from my dad and that side of the family and their culture, uh, stained glass was sort of an entry point into connecting with that side of my family, the heritage culture um, through this material and that definitely has informed the work i make in stained glass i mean not all of it but i think we'll get into some of the themes that reoccur in my work and some of that does come out of yeah my my relationship to religion because a lot of my dads my dad's side of the family they're you know traditional roman catholic italian their glass work is predominantly for cathedrals and churches it's very like ecclesiastical it's very specific aesthetic so yeah anyways i'll come back into that but so that's sort of glass and then stone i'm self-taught as a stone carver oh i didn't know that it's amazing it is but it's also i feel like i don't know it's just very intuitive like it's the the entry-level tools are pretty rudimentary like it's a hammer and a chisel like it's the same tools that have been used forever you know it's sort of the most basic thing like you hit the hammer and the chisel, and you point the chisel (laughs) at the part you want to disappear, you know, Mm -hmm. and take away at, and, like, I do use,
0: you have to understand the, the stone so well, so that you don't fracture it, or make some kind of quick mistake.
1: Yeah, and I definitely make a lot of mistakes, and it's, like, a learning process, but I feel like, in terms of being a self-taught thing, like, you can kind of, well, I don't know, I found that I was sort of able to figure Mm -hmm. it out, and I do now also use all types of, contemporary tools and like angle grinders, sawzall, orbital sander, all types of things that I mix with the traditional tools, because there's things that the traditional hand tools do better than, you know, whatever power tools. So yeah, how I got into stone. So uh, again, more family history. So my dad carved stone as, as an artist and Throughout my dad's family, also there's a lot of stone carving, but not as a trade, more as um, whatever, they're Italian, they just like carve stone. <laughs> um and um my dad died in 2016. And as an only child, like it was my job to clean his house and get his affairs in order. Okay. And his house was just like filled with all his stone carvings that he'd made. I'd sort of had it in the back of my head for a while that I wanted to work in stone and then cleaning out his house and sort of spending a lot of time with his staff and his work sort of gave me a sense of urgency about carving stone. And I think, and he was also self-taught as a stone carver. And so I think I used like teaching myself to carve stone. as like a way to grieve, which also informed certainly like the first couple of years of my stone carving in terms of like the content I made.
0: So did you start uh, using stone after that, after encountering? The-
1: yeah 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 about um yeah like four months so he died in november and i'd say like january february i went and got a piece of stone and was like okay let's try this wow and i feel like it just felt pretty intuitive and then i'm kind of hooked on it like like i was saying earlier like i don't marry myself to any particular material which may be surprising to people that like i feel like there's articles about me that are like The stone carver is like (laughs) this, you know, like or like artists like works in stained glass and these like very, you know, um, and yeah, I love those materials right now, but no promises.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, and you said that um, your the materials like the stained glass and the stone lend themselves to the themes that you explore in your work. Um, Yeah, what do you mean by that?
1: both conceptually and like viscerally. So I mean, I'll I'll go into a bunch of different themes that reoccur, but one, for example, feeling that's like my most coveted feeling or has been for a long time is the feeling of precarity. And stone and glass both really naturally have those qualities just because they're fragile. You know, there's ways to really turn up the heat on that feeling of precarity Mm -hmm. um so i found like yeah there's something there and then with stone in particular i just think that. so if i think of any of the objects that i've carved in stone like if i think of them in bronze or cast or plastic or resin or clay even like it doesn't have that same aura (laughs) i mean that's like such a traditional like notion in art history like the aura Mm -hmm. of a painting or something but I really do feel like glass and stone have that type of aura that
0: well it obviously connects to your context right like in terms of your familial history and and um I don't know there's something to be said for that I think you know um because it speaks to your particular um experience and your sort of access as well. so that, I'm sure that plays into it, but I think the precarity also of the material is so, is such a good point.
1: Yeah, and there's like ways of staging material that turns up the sense of tension as well, like, um, I never used plinths, so I always use like some type of utilitarian public armature <laughs> is mm-hmm. what I think is how I think of it like the the railings are a reoccurring thing um or the bleachers and like with the, the railings in particular like if the sculpture is larger than the railing like if the base of it is wider then you can sort of increase that feeling of like if anybody breathes it'll break like the yeah. sort of feeling of extreme tension and like the bear traps stained glass bear trap pieces have that also like yeah, and there is a lot of. I mean, people always love to hear like, "Oh, do you break your work a lot?" It's like, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, they're uh, natural. They're natural materials. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the um, so actually, maybe I'll ask you. I was going to ask you more about the exhibition to start, but maybe we'll continue on this um trajectory because I I, you know, your broader work so. I'm interested also in your controls or your interest in between measures of control views versus desires for security. And like you've said before, that your work um, meditates on how desires for protection and safety can actually manifest in acts of exclusion or segregation or harm. Um, And what is interesting about that is that you said your work sits at the precarious line between the body threatened and the body that's threatening so it's never so you always have this feeling of being unsettled right you're not sort of sitting in one of those um experiences you're you're constantly feeling a little bit tense or something and i think that that's sort of plays into what you're saying about you know your works on their on Utilitarian objects that you use as plinths—it does feel like if you just bump it, there will be disaster. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah, the the like slippage between control and security is yeah like a reoccurring area of interest for me. Like for the show at Cooper Cole that's up right now, our denomination, one of the main things that I was interested in is the notion of in-group and how, because coping mechanisms in in general are sort of a reoccurring interest of mine and like the ways that those are formed and the implications of them. And um, I started to think about how the idea of being on the inside or outside of an in-group is itself a coping mechanism. So like Mm. Your religious affiliation or your political, or your team or your, yeah political affiliation or nationality mm-hmm. like there's all these layers of borders that we draw around ourselves to insulate ourselves and so seeing the sort of double edge of that like a mental security blanket that like this is my group and like we identify together
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and the sort of idea of like group think that comes with that but then the flip side of that being Like, I think that's, I mean, not to go extreme, but that's like how genocide is perpetrated. Yeah. And the insider, outsider, that that violence is most easily committed against those that you think of as outside of your Um, Mm in-group.
0: And is that why you included the bleachers as a uh, plinth?
1: Yeah. So the bleachers, I was really thinking of them as like a metaphor for a public... group that's sort of like a permeable barrier like you sit on this side of the stadium like it's very like you voluntarily join it Mm -hmm. and collectively identify like we're on this team and then with the staging of the exhibition for Cooper Cole I sort of had it set like a church so the the bleachers sort of look like pews in terms of their orientation to the wall works yeah, so I do one, after that, yeah.
0: especially because it's like as soon as you walk into the space it's facing you so there's something a bit even uh confronting about
1: it yeah I just sort of visually like pews and bleachers like mm-hmm. there's obviously a similarity um and they're both yeah like publicly self-selecting mm-hmm. in groups that you can be a part of and sports are an ongoing fascination of mine and it, in terms of sort of the psychology of how we think about sports and like what it means culturally, even though it's right. very alien to me, uh, yeah. so, like, it's not, my, it's not like my like hobby interest or something, but. Um,
0: well, and you've said kind of coming off of that, you've said that mise-en-scene is very important to you when creating an exhibition and um, you were really involved in the spatial aspect of it, of our denomination. So, um, it, so it's interesting to hear some insight into how you approach that installation and how everything was placed and um yeah maybe you can speak a bit more about that or even the um placement of the uh uh pacifiers on the bleacher as well
1: yeah i always approach a solo show sort of i think of them like cinematically in the sense of it being like a contained world that has its own like logic and bracketed narrative in a way um I think previously I've talked about how I stage exhibitions sort of like, or think about the work in the exhibition, like an essay or a poem, like it's not just a collection of recent work put together. It's, I really give a lot of thought into, yeah, this like cinematically contained world. And there's overlap from one to the other, from one show to the other. But um, I think, I don't, I mean, I have a bit of a film background. I did two years in at York. In film um which is funny because I'm not like I don't like movies and I'm (laughs) like the only person in the world who doesn't like movies yeah it's very alien (laughs) I'm not trying to be an edge (laughs) lord I just I don't have the attention span but (laughs) um (laughs) like I feel like the thing that I, I I did absorb some methodologies from film school that I carry with me and that being one of them and thinking about the architecture of a space. And I guess that comes in with the railings as a reoccurring thing that I use um, as a way to sort of control the viewer's movement through the space.
0: Um, So the the rose window works um, in the exhibition, you have three, uh, and they reference rose windows in ecclesiastical Gothic architecture. But then, except in your works, where like what would be the tracery is actually much thicker and heavier. And in place of saints um, or apostles, you've included found images of men from barbershops or barbershop posters. Um, Yeah, can you speak a bit about the concepts behind these works and how you brought them together?
1: So, with the rose window pieces, they sort of came through experimentation and thinking about churches as sort of a site that Q deep internal processes that then like communion with metaphysical ideas of death and the afterlife and people of the mm-hmm. past. And it's, I sort of, I have this recurring sort of sentiment in my work that like religion as an entry point into magical thinking. Mm-hmm. And with that, I'm thinking about how it's like the most normative way in which we enter into those ideas.
0: Yeah. And um, like, a, a, I guess a physical space that allows you to enter into that
1: yeah, like the church itself being a place of like cues, like this is this physical space where when you cross that threshold, it's just sort of a different mindset and
0: and it's like a yeah. And I does that connect with, I mean, I know you don't have um we have another work at the gallery that's not part of the show, but it's like you you know, you think about um contact like physical contact between the body um for instance like touching an object for blessing or for good luck um you sort of will sometimes polish areas to to insinuate a touch um that connect with uh
1: yeah i think you're talking so you're referring to a shovel sculpture that i did that had um i selectively high did a high polish yeah so yeah. when you do high polish on stone, the surface like it literally looks like glass or it looks wet. it's mm-hmm. really amazing. and there's no like varnish or anything on that that's just from polishing because and it's like
0: it makes it okay for me to touch it even though I yeah. know I can't
1: <laughs> you're allowed to <laughs> um, yeah, so there's um, you know sculptures usually in ecclesiastical settings where, there'll be one portion of the sculpture that's highly polished from people touching it for good luck. And there's this sort of like ritual. And there's also like an aspect to, um,
0: in terms of like thinking of a church of of sanctuary, right? Which probably plays into your work more more broadly in terms of a security or um, protection.
1: Totally, yeah. That really comes up in the stained glass dog houses pieces. So I have a series, they're like oversized dog. Hu- I mean, it's like this, a dog house for like a great Dane. They're pretty big. Yeah. Um, and there's sort of a mix between a church and a dog house and the stained glass pattern usually has a fence in it. So again, thinking about borders and enclosures and yeah, that sort of slippage between like sanctuary and subjugation mm. um, that when you're containing something, you're invariably keeping something out, and the sort of potential like violence of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, is that? I, I assume that's where the title "our denomination" came from. Is that sort of what you were thinking about?
1: Well, yeah. So, with the 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 interest in in groups and their sort of utility socially, our denomination, yeah, being like a self selecting um, in group. Hmm. And by saying our denomination, I'm saying claiming it as as mine and yours, and not yeah. other people's, is sort of there's like comfort in that, a safety yeah.
0: or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the um, include. So uh, I want to talk more about that because you've used um, found barbershop posters before, mm-hmm. so I'm curious about that. Like what drew you to using those as a as a material um and you know what it means to sort of put them in the in the sort of um cu- um I don't know what you would call the areas that you cut out in the rose window I call
1: them cutouts yeah oh, cutouts. okay yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah barbershop posters I've always sort of been drawn to them as images and I think earlier I was talking about how I came into carving stone after my dad died so uh I grew up basically without a dad and then my dad died. So it was like this double loss or like this double Mm -hmm. two stages of like alienation from a parental or paternal figure. Mm -hmm. And in working through that personally made me sort of interested in alienation in relationship to masculinity Mm -hmm. and the barbershop posters felt like the perfect vehicle for that. So they, I mean, they're these sort of stock images of men that they're personal images because they're portraits, but they're also not meant to be, um, they're they're utilitarian. Like they're just really showing off a haircut. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a sort of mix between those, those two things. And most barbershop posters like out in the real world, which are the ones that, I mean, all the posters they use are sourced from actual locations. Um, you know, they get faded in the sun and they turn that sort of soft blue mm-hmm. and there's sort of just a feeling of obsolescence or not like neglect viscerally to me. And also I think like male barbershops are a space for men. And so for me as like, that's not a space where there's anything for me in the, like, I feel very much like an outsider looking in and it sort of emotionally rhymed with the feeling of alienation that I was personally feeling. Um, And so the, the first show, big show I did after my dad died was Pledge at Company. Mm -hmm. And that show was basically about masculinity and not in a sort of quippy, like toxic masculinity, like that's not interesting to me, but sort of like actually addressing like what I perceive as male pain in the culture and male alienation in the culture like both by myself personally but also just like observing around me the sort of shitty options for like contemporary masculinity that are available and like how
0: yeah and I mean there's definitely like a sense of alienation in the works in the photographs I guess because it's not it feels strange calling them portraits but just in the fact that they've been sort of physically neglected but also the fact that the uh, men are mostly all, like, looking away. None of them are looking outward. Um, They're looking away because they're, I mean, they're trying to show their haircut, but... um,
1: They all sort of, they often have, like, a very sad expression, which is just sort of, which is, I think, one of the things that before working with these materials, like, I would always just stare at these images and, like, wonder about these people. And just Mm -hmm. as, like, an object that exists socially, like, they're very peculiar, but they're also very banal. Yeah, and, and I think there's a
0: contrast th- with, um, you know, material contrast with being framed with this, like, very um, beautiful stone and stained glass. And that's, um, you know, very intricately carved and um, and yet they fit perfectly in those spaces.
1: Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's definitely something that draws me to, to them is, like, using a ready-made object that's kind of trashed. The way it contrasts with the sort of like high art aura of of stone and glass, mm-hmm. um, I just think like they really communicate well together in their their like disparate aura. Yeah, you <laughs> say that. And just to as like a aside of how I collect the posters because I think it's kind of funny is so originally when I figured out that I wanted to work with these posters and I knew I wanted them to be the actual posters from the places not. You know, prints or something like that. I tried to go and buy them directly and it was not successful. People were like, What are you doing? Get out of here. Um, <laughs> so then, so then what I realized is why that I, because
0: you had to be like a, a business or
1: no, just like didn't understand why someone coming off the street wants to buy a poster off the wall. I think just people were pretty, it just like was a very socially oh, well. uncomfortable interaction that didn't oh, yeah. ever end with me being able to like purchase the purchase
0: poster. poster and you, you meant you went into barbershops and asked them
1: yeah yeah oh, wow. and it was just yeah and it, it didn't go well so then I realized <laughs> that what I could do is because there's like I said maybe 20 posters in circulation in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean I'm sure every country has their like own whatever there's like
0: and yeah yeah.
1: so what I would do is I would find the poster that I wanted out in the real world so I'm passing a barbershop I see okay they've got the one that I want it's like the right color from like the right level of fade. So then I would go online to this barbershop distributor buy the new poster and then go in with the new poster and say, can I trade you this new one for for this old one? And they always say yes. Yeah. And and then if they ask what's what the deal is, my line is that I'm a set decorator and (laughs) that I'm doing a scene in a barbershop and I need faded looking posters.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the way to do it. I think you. it makes it a little more salient than um, explaining you're putting it into a rose window, but not a real rose window.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it just, it's not like legible. No. So I found that that's really worked and it's sort of looking funny. Part of my practice is this little song and dance to get these posters. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's win-win in that case. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then they get the new, and then I, um, it's funny because there's a barbershop sort of near our studio I've done this sort of swap. Mm-hmm. And then a couple years later, I traded it again. Like I, nice. I traded up the one that I'd traded them because it, <laughs> f- it faded in the two years. <laughs> yeah.
0: See you in another two years. <laughs> yeah.
1: Very normal.
0: <laughs> um, okay i let's talk about the pacifiers um mm-hmm. so these are uh sculptures they are life-sized pacifiers if they were made for adults so they're larger than a baby pacifier um and you you know similar to the rose windows you did them in various stones um so there's a very obvious contrast from the softness of a baby pacifier, and I, I definitely get a visceral response looking at them, and just imagine imagining them breaking my teeth, um, and this sense of moving between you know protection and vulnerability um, as a theme really comes up. I think in these sculptures. Um, yeah, I was wondering if you could describe the concept behind them a little bit, um, you know, formally, but also um, psychologically.
1: So, yeah, it was really important to me that they were life-size for an adult to sort of get that feeling of, like, you want to put it in your mouth and the impossibility of the object. And just in terms of previous work that I think this ties in with, for Pledge at Company, I did some stone earplugs that were Mm life-size. And again, that sort of, you know, if you plugged a hole with this object, it would be detrimental. Like this sort of impossibility, impossible object. Um, yeah. Um. All of the material for the pacifiers is scrap. And actually all the same with the rose windows for the show. This entire show was made with scrap stone. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Like the, the wall works are all off cuts from countertops. Okay. So I go to the stone yard where they dump the materials and actually like the pink rose window. So it's split down the middle. And that, I mean, I'm very happy with that. And that choice is going to be something that I reuse, but that was originally just because it was in two parts. And I really liked the color of that stone.
0: Yeah. It's amazing.
1: And it was just that I didn't have enough to make a full rose window. So then I had to sort of solve that by making this sort of rupture in the middle.
0: But that's sort of, I mean, I love that. I think it's one of the most, you know, it's a really interesting aspect of the work. Totally.
1: I feel like sometimes limitations in your materials are, I mean, it's what makes you think creatively mm-hmm. and find solutions that you wouldn't otherwise come to. And so the basis of the pacifiers, they sort of, sort of two poles of how Sorry, I'm I'm visually doing a thing with my hands like on one side there's there's um pacifiers that look uh, my pacifier sculptures that look literally like pacifiers and they're pretty sort of verbatim objects and on the other side they get very abstracted and the base of the pacifier looks like a quadrifoil or a trifoil that is the same size and dimensions as the cutouts from the rose window so there's Mm -hmm. a rhyming between the pacifiers and the rose windows and this sort of idea that they're either plugged into the holes in the tracery or they're pulled out of and with the black rose window in particular the quatrefoils and trifoils that are put in are there's chipping around them so there's a sort of i think narratively this idea of that, that the shapes are like smashed into it
0: yeah i really get that sense it feels like there was a lot of force and like sort of slamming them into the rose window.
1: Yeah, the tipping sort of like gives like a like an indexical action mark. Like this is mm-hmm. where this movement happened,
0: and the um, the sort of handle, I guess, if you would call it that, of the mm-hmm. pacifier is um, like a a padlock shackle.
1: Right. Yeah. And in terms of thinking, so the the reason for that being like again the theme of security. And the pacifier is a security, the self soothing object, and the law. Lo- I mean, locks and lock shackles have been sort of a reoccurring image or idea in my work. And the sort of, I mean, yes, security, but also as a demarcation of private property
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that you see in, in public. So a bike that's locked up, or a business, or a gate. And with my mind frame in terms of my work, like thinking about. That demarcation is kind of a violent act. Yeah. For example, like there's a park, and I've, I've talked about this before. There's a park in Manhattan. It's just like north of Union Square, and it's so beautiful. It has beautiful flowers and benches and trees. Yeah. Walkways, and it's gated. Oh, a private
0: one. What's it's a private?
1: private. Yeah, yeah, it's a private park, and if you live in the real estate around the park, you have you have a key right. that lets you into the park.
0: Yeah, it's wild. It's that really wild. Concept. Yeah.
1: It's so wild. And it's, I mean, there's like a couple people around. Now. It's a super expensive area. So the only people yeah. that have it are these rich people that live in these apartment buildings. And on the sidewalk right outside of it, there's, yeah, there's homeless people and there's garbage and there's
0: real the world. Like, it, there's it, a real world. Yeah. It's and so it's wild. this.
1: So the lock on that gate in particular signifies my, like, aside from the security thing, that the thing we're saying, like public-private property delineation, like that is, and the vi- the potential violence of that. And that's not even political. There's I mean-
0: boundaries, you know, and just- um, Yeah. Really, like there is that, you know, what you were saying of like in-group, like that's so like, is, what is the better example of that, of just like turning so inwards and so private um, with yeah. people who are, you know, quote unquote, like you
1: yeah totally yeah and
0: then but some of them are um in your sculptures some of them are um cut and open and like some of them are even like you know attached to the rose windows like you really just inserted them yeah it has it gives it appears that way
1: yeah so it was important for me in both the pacifiers and the rose windows to have the locks in various states like locked unlocked and cut Mm -hmm. and I think that the, the cut lock is just sort of to me like signals the fallibility of that boundary. Mm-hmm. Like a lock is sort of a placeholder. And if I'm thinking of a lock as a metaphor for security or this delineation of public-private, these are socially agreed upon, you know, they're they're socially constructed. Mm-hmm. And in that they are permeable and fallible and showing the lock that's been cracked. I think sort of signals that, that the protection is really only a placeholder. And like, so for example, in previous works of mine, I've used home security stickers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that does the same thing of like, you're signaling safety. Like, for example, for those pieces with the, the stickers, I ordered them online. Mm -hmm. and so you can just buy them online and put them in your window and it does the thing not have a
0: security system
1: No, have this right like it's 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 about signaling versus the real like yeah yeah and, and I think that that points to how these things are socially constructed
0: yeah absolutely and it's um you know I think when I think of the pacifier as well I guess in uh, you know, that we also sometimes call them soothers, you know, this idea yeah. of of soothing um, a sort of crying or anxiety or, you know, discomfort, um, you know, is also like to silence a baby, you know, to silence or to, in yeah. the case of your sculptures, to silence an adult. Um, yeah. You know, whether that's a, you know, politically motivated or otherwise, is it, not My point, but just in terms of, um, yeah, this idea of signaling, you know, creating, putting something as a placeholder for actual comfort.
1: Right. Yeah. Like the baby cries when it's hungry or it wants its mother and this sort of, yeah.
0: It holds it off.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It, you know, delays. um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And also, I think with the installation for our denomination, the crowd that is implied by bleachers would be like a noisy like Mm -hmm. there'd be a sound associated with that and then the pacifier being like a silencer there's sort of like a i think a joke in there about like oh yeah totally yeah like the the silencing object on the noisy yeah noisy context and this sort of contrast and i also think that some of the pacifiers um look like butt plugs so again like (laughs) there i swear to god there's as like dark and like serious as my work generally is there's I promise there's a ton of humor in it there is humor Um, yeah definitely and I think that's that's like one of the places is like these because there's like a sliding scale of like how realistic they look as pacifiers versus these abstracted objects versus butt plugs within that sliding scale there's kind of like a humor of which which hole do I plug with this (laughs) you know uh, (laughs)
0: Um, yeah, so you yeah. sit down on the bleachers, and then you have to figure out how to how to use the the pacifier.
1: Yeah, there's like a psychosexual joke in there about totally. like yeah, which, which hole gets plugged? Yeah, um, yeah.
0: Um. Well, yeah, and that's sort of like sitting in between, you know, definitions is like it sort of goes back to what we were saying earlier about just um precarity and sort of sitting on a line between something um, and. I remember uh, one time you said um, that your work uh, negates escapism and that it doesn't, you know, seek to define a resolution um, as much as um, you want to sort of question the possibility of of true sanctuary or true protection. Um, and there's always this sort of, um, as a result, a sort of oscillation that occurs between um, understandings of of sanctuary or, you know security or you know any sort of vulnerability um and uh I don't know I'm curious to hear you Hugh say a little bit about that
1: I feel like pretty steadfast in not ever having putting forth like a resolved version of of the world or of the work or having and and that's either in not allowing there to be a single reading Mm -hmm. Um, so letting the objects be slippery, slippery, um, conceptually and visually, that's, I think, pretty reflective of a realistic worldview also just, you know, the move, the sort of movement of signs and ideology and.
0: Yeah. In in so many ways, right. On the one hand, just in terms of the way, um, you know, different information, can be conveyed through, you know, various channels. Um, essentially, you know, there being different truths around um, in a manner of speaking, but also just in terms of art, um, you know, I think that we've not to be too art history, but you know, art history has taught us that um, you know, one this symbolizes this and that means this, and that's the story. Right. Um yeah. And that there's no, it, like it's this or that. There's no in between.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I think that moving, you know, sort of resisting that in work is is very hard because we're still, <clears throat> sort of trained to think that way. Even though contemporary art is very different, um, but I think you know, s- sort of being, in between definitions or in between sort of understandings is a very, difficult but powerful place to be.
1: Yeah. I think we're like pretty comfortable with there's no there's not like a didactic reading of
0: mm-hmm.
1: of anything um yeah it's fun, like I mean I don't get asked this anymore thank god but I used to get asked what like if my work was feminist and it's just like right. the most inane question to me because like as far as activism goes in art objects I mean yes there are artists that work in those veins and I think and I like that work and think it's cool but I'm definitely not in working in a channel of trying to communicate a thesis. Right. I'm just way more interested in just like making mucky signs.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Agreed. Well, um, I'm going to ask a last question that I like to ask. What are you reading these days? Are there any like text or audio that contributed to your thinking um, with our
1: denomination? So for our denomination, my during the making of the show, so over the winter, my partner Michael and I were reading um, the new David Graeber book. It's like a history of social organization within early human civilizations. Yeah. And it's fabulous. I highly recommend it. And I didn't mean to read it in relation to my work. Um, I was sort of interested in that time period generally but it made me think about how archaeology sort of fits into my work. When you work in stone, like you think about deep time. Yeah. Because of how stone is made, where it comes from, you end up thinking about, yeah, just the time scale of those materials. And so reading that book and thinking about early humans and archaeology sort of made me think a little bit more about how to push that in the work of it, which I don't think happened yet in our denomination. Like I'm still chewing on that, but maybe the one place where it started to creep up is in the black rose window with the stamped out quatrefoils and trifoils. I think it points a little bit towards a physical excavation. And previously, um, I've done a series of shovels, and those works are very much about like burial versus ex- excavation. I won't go too far into it, but that's just to say that, you know, this is something that's sort of been on the sidelines for a while. And reading that book made me think about ways to bring that into the work and how it relates to the materials I'm working with. I just finished this series by N.K. Jameson. It's the Broken Earth series. It's sci-fi. It wasn't great. I did read all three books. (laughs) So (laughs) for me to say it wasn't great. Um, I obviously enjoyed it enough to read, like, the whole series yeah I don't know I read a lot so that's great
0: no it's such a good point about archaeology I um I guess it is natural to think about that when you're working with these super old materials that developed over time um it's hard to avoid thinking about that um yeah
1: yeah I guess it's really insane stone is it's basically a core sample Mm -hmm. and just the variation in terms of color and texture in different parts of the world
0: yeah, cause you have you've used stones from different parts of Europe and the states, and they all look so different,
1: so different, yeah. yeah. like calcite, for example, is the orange stone that I'm obsessed with. It's only mined in Utah. Mm-hmm. And the color comes from like crushed bugs
0: the that yellowy one, yeah, oh wow. yeah. that one is so incredible. I can't believe it's yeah. natural.
1: I know. There's so many stones that I, like, (laughs) I really lose my mind about. Yeah. Yeah. And then just the, like, act of excavating it from, like, deep within the earth. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. There's a lot there. And, you know, stone is, I mean, it's all millions and millions of years old. It's, It's made through extreme heat and pressure. I mean, marble is... The, the process of how marble is created is wild just in terms of the temperature and the pressure that's required to produce it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's really cool.
0: Well, I think, yeah. Archaeology and stones, maybe that's our next talk together.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so.
0: <laughs> to be continued. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much, Ben. It was great to hear about this work and, um, hopefully, um, everyone listening can see it in person and see the stones in person but if not we have this podcast so
1: and we have the computer
0: yeah (laughs) well thank you so much okay have a great day you too bye